When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. John A. Costello, born in Dublin June the 20th, 1891, died in Dublin January 5th, 1976. Politician, barrister, former Taoiseach. This programme on his career, his careers, largely a self-portrait. My recollection as a young man, was as a young boy really, was listening to the talk in my house about Parnell and about David and about John Dillon and John Redmond and also all about Sean T. O'Kelly. John A. Costello could remember Victorian Dublin. I remember Queen Victoria visiting Ireland, I think about 1900. I was a young boy at the time, only about nine years of age, but I have a most distinct recollection of seeing her, a small, dumpy, fat woman, with the impression she left on me, driving in an open carriage in the Phoenix Park. I just caught a glimpse of her, and of course at that stage... Ireland was in the Ireland, and particularly Dublin, was in the hands of the ascendancy. He was struck as a young man by the poverty he saw in Dublin, and this was to motivate him in politics and in other fields of endeavour in later life. I have seen the most miraculous changes, particularly here in the city of Dublin, and I get very restive and very, in, uh, very, very critical of all people who say that nothing has been achieved since we got our own government. A miracle has been, in my view, and my own life, lifetime achieved in the economic circumstances and the conditions of this country. When I was young, I remember the conditions that existed in the slums of Dublin. They were unbelievable. I remember a time when two of the slum houses in Church Street fell down on top of the people who were in it. I remember seeing people, and it was part of the way they, of, of their livelihood, young girls with shawls over them. And under the shawls, they'd have a, a jug and they'd be going out for the pint of porter, which would then cost twopence, and which was the staple, almost the staple diet, apart from tea and bread, of the ordinary dwellers in the slums. And the conditions in which the young people, and particularly the children, lived here in Dublin were indescribable. A phrase that my mother used to use about some of the people that you'd see in the slums when she'd see a young girl. She, her, she summed it up by saying that she hadn't enough on her to dust a fiddle. So practically, practically, practically naked. That's gone now. There is no such thing now. We have our property. We have our problems. We're not as well off as we would like to be. But when I look back and remember what I did see at that time, I say, I, I say that nothing short of a miracle has occurred, and I don't care what government gets the blame or doesn't get the favour, get, 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 get the, the thanks for what has been achieved. A lot has been achieved in my own time. Growing up in a politically minded house, his father was a civil servant, Johnny Costello studied law at UCD. He was not then in active politics, but he took an interest in the great political question of the day, home rule. He remembers the aspiration for an Irish parliament. Not so much a desire as a sort of wild hope that there would, in my time, be an Irish Parliament. 
but it never entered into my head, much as I would have liked it, and I would have thought at that time it was the highest ambition that any Irishman could have, to be a member of an Irish parliament. At UCD, Mr Costello studied history, languages and literature before turning to law. He was called to the bar in Dublin in 1914. I remember when I was called to the bar and some friend of mine called me at the door of the bar library, not to give me a brief, but just to get my name called. The, the eyebrows of some of the representatives of North and South Ireland at that time raised in wonder that a person with the name of Costello could be called to the Irish bar. Over 60 years later, he was still practising at the Irish bar. And after he died, the Supreme Court was crowded on the opening day of the Hillary term to hear the Chief Justice, Mr Justice O'Higgins, pay him this tribute. The successful practice and profession of the law requires not only legal knowledge, but wisdom and experience, not only rhetoric and skill, but shrewdness, not only a quickness to appreciate facts, but also a patience to discover the essential detail. All these John Costello brought in abundance to the courts in which he practised. My tribute essentially was... Uh, on behalf of the bench and bar to a great barrister. Tom O'Higgins outlined Mr Costello's remarkable record. It has been suggested that no barrister in any country had served for so long. To have been 60 years, uh, almost all of it, in practice in the courts and to be practising right up to the end, certainly uh, I can't think of anyone who uh, led such a full life of practice. And indeed... When one looks at the fact that he was called in 1914, had been Attorney General from 1926 to 1932, then into uh, practice, and by 1948, with the late Cecil Lavery, I suppose, they were the two giants of the Irish Bar. Twice then out for periods heading government, and twice back to start again. It showed a, a tremendous courage and a tremendous dedication to his art. The present Thishuk, Liam Cosgrave, was a young barrister in the 1940s. He recalled John A. Costello at that time as an extremely forceful advocate. It was interesting to watch his uh, method of, of speaking and so on. When I was called to the bar first, the outstanding lawyers... Uh, then practising were himself and the late uh, Judge Cecil Lavery. Both of them had different styles. Uh, Cecil Lavery was uh, quieter in some ways, maybe not as forceful, although he could speak very forcefully. But John A. Costello was extremely forceful, had a great method of addressing juries, uh, and applied all his knowledge and enthusiasm on behalf of his client or on behalf of uh, whatever case he was making. I think this was his chief characteristic, that he identified himself completely with his client and he was always convinced of the righteousness of his client's cause. That, I imagine, was one of the reasons why he was so successful. And Costello's first quality as a barrister, as Tom O'Higgins recalled, absolute integrity. A tremendous personal courage and I suppose above all an absolute conviction that his side was right and indeed it was uh, it was that um, oh powerful sincerity which um, coloured 
his advocacy for so many years that really made uh, caused him to make such a mark on the Irish bar and the Irish courts. Tom O'Higgins occasionally worked alongside him as a junior. But uh, working opposite him and against him was also an experience you never could afford to miss a trick. Of course, I was very much and I would be very much junior to uh, the late Mr. Coslow, but uh, I, I often, as a junior, uh, worked with him and later as a, as a senior. But I, I think I can remember him in particular uh, addressing the Supreme Court, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago, in the great constitutional cases uh, of the late 30s and early 40s. And he used to get a point, uh, cut away all the trimmings, and drive it home in such a tremendous way that one used to say, well, I pity that man's opponent. Would he ever find an answer to it? And indeed, he had a dramatic effect on... Um, a divisional court like the Supreme Court, a number of judges, and, of course, uh, he was a tremendous jury man. Uh, with juries, he, he carried such a conviction that it was really most unusual if uh, a jury didn't come out with a verdict he wished. The London Times, in their obituary of John Costello, drew this portrait of him as a barrister. At the Irish bar, Jack Costello was an immense and much-loved figure, purposeful, bustling busily around the law library in Dublin's forecourts, or poring intently over papers at his desk, flicking his propelling pencil in the air as he read. In the closely-knit, not uncritical community that is the Irish bar, his qualities of kindness and compassion, as well as his transparent honesty, were universally recognised. In his later days, he had the aura of a survivor from a bygone golden age. Every honour was paid to him. His colleagues recognised in him the supreme, all-round craftsman of the profession. He was equally at home haranguing a jury or cross-examining a recalcitrant witness as unwinding a complex set of facts or arguing a difficult legal point. The latter he tended to do with an informality and gruffness, almost amounting to irreverence, which belied the erudition and complexities involved. His experience as a Chancery junior and later as a law officer gave him a wider knowledge of Irish law than most practitioners. He did not hesitate to tell judges that he knew what a statute meant as he had drafted it. He threw himself into a case with immense zest, apparently utterly unable to conceive that his client might be in the wrong. He was a master of the tactics of litigation and possessed an originality of approach, generally the fruit of painstaking investigation, which was an invaluable asset in a difficult situation. Probably his most memorable performance was his cross-examination of Patrick Kavanagh, the Monaghan poet, when the latter sued an Irish paper for libel in the early 1950s. Costello seemed to know the poet's work better than the author himself. It was a, a tremendous triumph, again, for him as an advocate, but in a different way. Uh, I hope it won't be regarded as in any way inimical to blame Mr. Governor or anybody else, but it was an exercise in court craft. He uh, paid out the rope to Mr. Kavanagh in his cross-examination. It wasn't um, an assault on the direct examination. It was uh, giving so much license and liberty that at the end of the cross-examination, 
I, I think uh, it was perfectly clear that he had brought home to the jury the message he wanted to bring. And Liam Cosgrave emphasises John Costello's contribution as a constitutional lawyer. This really was his forte. He was uh, one of the, if not the preeminent lawyer of all that period. He had been uh, assistant attorney general to the late Hugh Kennedy, who was attorney general and subsequently chief justice. And he filled the same position for a period with uh, the late John O'Byrne, who was attorney general and who was subsequently a judge of the Supreme Court. And during all that time, he was responsible not only for uh, advice as Attorney General, but in his capacity both as Assistant and later as Attorney General for drafting many of the acts that were involved in implementing the original Constitution. He was also responsible for presenting the legal view of Ireland's case at international conferences with, of course, his ministerial colleagues of the day, such as the Imperial Conference or Commonwealth Conference, whatever title they went under. And he drafted a great many acts that were responsible for constitutional development. And indeed, I'm sure his contribution was acknowledged as of an outstanding kind so far as constitutional matters were concerned. And although he was playing this active part in Gael politics as Attorney General in the last six years of W.T. Cosgrave's administration, Mr. Costello was not then a member of the Doyle. I entered Parliament in the year in January 1933. I uh, became TD for the count, then County Dublin, which was a huge constituency that stretched from Balbriggan to Bray and right concluded the Dublin Townships and the Dunleary Corporation. This was the beginning of the ascendancy of Eamon de Valera in Irish parliamentary politics, the beginning of 16 years of Fianna Fáil rule, and it was a mere decade after the Civil War. The Fianna Fáil party had just taken their seats in the dial, and as we now know, they were, all, they were almost prepared for Mr Cosgrave to do something which never entered into his head, uh, to lead, the, lead an insurrection against the will of the Irish people in electing precariously at that time as it happened, Fianna Fáil, to a position where they could form a government. It looked extraordinarily un, un, unwholesome at the time. The Fianna Fáil party wouldn't allow their members to, to have any, any sort of talk or chat or any kind of the ordinary courtesies take place between them and members of the opposition. You couldn't meet them in the bar, you couldn't meet them in the corridors. They looked with extreme suspicion, and the whole atmosphere was one of distrust and rather uh, terror of what was going to happen. I recall that a number of the eminent politicians at that time, when they saw the policy that was to be enforced by Fianna Fáil, they gave the prognostication that Ireland couldn't remain without being bankrupt for more than 12 months. Of course, they were all wrong, as the economists nearly always are. In fact, Fianna Fáil were beginning a 16-year period in office. In these years... Mr. Costello divided his time between law and politics. He was a blunt man. His contributions to Dole debates show a preference for plain speaking. His expertise as a constitutional lawyer was also evident, as in the lengthy debate on Mr. de Valera's new constitution. In 1944, John A. Costello argued that in all democratic nations, the historic answer to a national emergency is coalition government. That was in wartime during the 1944 election. 
but it was the following election campaign in 1948 that proved to be decisive in his career. Noel Brown, then a young doctor fighting his first election for Clan Publicta, was shortly to be in John Costello's cabinet, though that was hardly predictable as both men fought that campaign in the same constituency, Dublin South East. Well, I, he was my const- very distinguished constituency, as you know. Myself, Mr. McIntyre, Mr. Costello, and I knew him. I knew him during the election when I found him a, 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 a very good, kindly opponent, clean fighter. Uh, no complaints whatsoever about him. The coalition which was forged after that 1948 election included some unlikely partners. Along with Fine Gael, there was the Radical Republican Socialist Party, Clanna Publicta both wings of the Labour Party, Labour and National Labour, and Clanna Talun, and the Independent, former Vice President of Fine Gael, future leader of the party, James Dillon. There seemed to be general agreement on two points, that the combined opposition parties should form an inter-party government to break Fianna Foyle's 16-year run in office, and that the Fine Gael leader, General Richard Mulcahy, as a controversial civil war figure, would not be an acceptable Taoiseach. General Mulcahy himself acknowledged this. John Costello's name was put forward, though he was reluctant to take the job of Taoiseach. Liam Cosgrave remembers the Fine Gael meetings when these decisions were reached. As a result of discussions at which, so far as Fine Gael was concerned, and most of which were held in General Mulcahy's house in Rathmines, it was agreed that John Costello would be put forward as Taoiseach because he was acceptable to the other parties as a person who had not been directly involved in the civil war and who was considered a neutral in the, in the sense of, although he was a party person, he was not personally involved in the way some other politicians had been on different sides and who are now prepared to agree together. He was reluctant to take the appointment. He was a modest man. At the same time, he recognised that it was his duty to do so and after a good deal of discussion, he accepted And in the first inter-party government, Liam Cosgrave was Mr Costello's parliamentary secretary. He was easy to work with. He left most of the arrangements, so far as the doll was concerned to myself, and uh, we got on very well together. And in government, he showed some of the same qualities that had marked his style at the bar. He was a very hard worker. Uh, this, I think, was exemplified also in his legal career, that uh, it was always accepted by his colleagues at the bar as well as in politics that when he devoted himself to a matter that required his attention, either a case or a political matter, that he knew everything about it. He briefed himself on all angles, read up everything that was necessary, discussed it, and then put his wholehearted energy and great skill as an advocate and ability into presenting the view that he believed was the correct one. Inevitably, a coalition which had not resulted from a pre-election pact and which had so many parties involved lacked the cohesion normally associated with single-party governments. Ministries were allocated according to party strength and indeed they had been allocated before Mr Costello's emergence as the agreed Taoiseach. A further point, the Clonna Public the leader, Sean McBride, insisted that the secretary to the department of the Taoiseach, the civil servant who normally kept the records of cabinet proceedings, should not, after so many years working closely with Fianna Fáil governments, should not attend the new government's cabinet meetings. Two of the controversies which surround that first inter-party government, the mother and child crisis which precipitated its fall, 
and the Declaration of the Republic in Canada were both marked by poor communication within the government. When our status is established as an independent republic without any formal links with the British Commonwealth of Nations, our country will strengthen still further. The ties of what happened was the decision to repeal the External Relations Act was taken by the government unanimously before we left for, uh, before I left for, for Canada uh, to attend the meeting of the Canadian Bar Association. On the occasion of his retirement from the Dáil 20 years later, Mr Costello recalled the circumstances in which the Republic was declared. What happened was that on one Sunday evening I was in with the late Mr John Hearn I, in his, he was then our ambassador in Canada, and I was in the, our embassy in Canada, and I was rung up by an editor of one of the Tory newspapers of Ottawa to say that it had been the news had broken in the, the edition of the of the Sunday Independent that day that the government intended to repeal the External Relations Act, and what had I to say about that? I, of course, said I wouldn't say anything at that time. But I had uh, arranged long before I came to Canada that there should be on the following Tuesday a press conference in the Parliament House in Ottawa. And there were very large, there, there, there was to be, and in fact there was a very large collection of newspaper men from all over America, Canada, and as far away as Russia. And I knew that the first question that I would be asked when the, that press conference assembled was, was it true what appeared in the Sunday Independent that the government intended to, to repeal the External Relation Act? And I made up my mind after considering it, I was thousands of miles away from my colleagues, the responsibility fell upon me, I could have dodged the issue, I could have said no comment, I could have made, I could have denied it. If I denied it, of course, it would have been a lie. If I said there would be no comment, it would have been clear that, 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 I should, that it, meant, it meant saying yes, they had decided. So I made up my mind that, as I have, that the view I always have, that in all circumstances telling the truth is the best. And I decided I would tell the truth, and all I said was, in answer to the question that was put to me, as I knew it inevitably would be put to me, when I was asked whether it was the intention of the government to repeal the External Relations Act, I said yes. Now that's way, the way I did not declare the Republic in Canada. Dr Noel Brown recalls that on his return from Canada, Mr Costello offered his resignation to his Cabinet colleagues. A couple of days after he came back, Sean McBride was in Paris. We were called to his house at which there was a meeting of the available ministers and uh, John Costa was very upset and distressed, as I said, and he offered our, in the course of the meeting, he offered to, it, us his, to, his resignation, offered to resign, and uh, that was rejected by all of us. I particularly remember Sean McKeown, who was very genial and kindly a person, being particularly sympathetic with Costello because he found himself in this dilemma. But um, certainly, uh, since no decision had been taken by the Cabinet, uh, Costello had no right to do what he did. However, the 
motivation for it is, 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 is such a bizarre and strange story that, that it's hardly credible. And I didn't bother to deal with it in my first letter because I preferred not to deal with it because it didn't seem to me to be uh, important. The only point I wished to make was that he had offered his resignation because he knew that he hadn't had the authority of the Cabinet to do what he did. So, uh, on further, uh, my veracity having been challenged, I then had to make the had to make it clear that what happened was this. And I had this verified by a member of the Fine Gael party who was very upset by Mr Costello's decision just two days ago in Leinster House, he told me the story as he heard it and, and substantially as I knew it, but I didn't know it from John Costello. This deputy, who most reputable deputy, heard it directly from John Costello in the presence of uh, Paddy McGilligan in the cabinet in the government in government buildings, Leinster House. John Costello said that two things had happened. He was involved apparently with the. He was very anxious naturally about the unity of Ireland and was involved in discussions with various generals apparently. And Alexander was a, Alexander, the governor of Canada, was involved. And Attlee then Attlee was here staying. Remember, he was ill. However, the nub of the question was the nub of the point was that he of the case was that he was at a dinner given by the Canadian Governor General and opposite him at the table was placed uh, Roaring Meg, a replica of Roaring Meg and he took this as a positive insult or a slight on him as a Southern Catholic and got very angry about it the second point was that his um, he understood that his wife had been slighted at a garden party by the Canadian establishment, and for these reasons he had been a fit of essentially it was a fit of pique and anger. He went out and made his speech, uh, promising to that the government, the Irish government, would repeal the External Relations Act, and this is the story as told to this deputy and repeated to me and is, as I say, substantially the story as I knew it but had not heard it from John Costler. The British response to the declaration of the Republic was to strengthen their guarantees to the Ulster Unionists in a new Government of Ireland Act. O'Connell Street in Dublin was crowded in May 1949 to hear all parties oppose this development. The Irish nation at home and abroad is united on this issue. We have here on this platform and in this vast concourse of people every class and every creed, every section of the people. We have different parties, different political parties represented. We have as political parties our different aims, our different policies, our different methods of achieving what we all hope for, for the peace, the unity and the advancement politically and economically of our country. But on this issue we are all united and we speak here tonight with one voice. Whatever our political views are, whatever our personal differences in the past may have been, we stand here tonight being a foil, and a gale, Labour and the public and the Taloon. Congress of Irish Union, Labour Party, the party from the north with Mr. McIntyre, Mr. Conlon and Senator Lennon. We all stand together here tonight 
and speak with one voice, demanding one thing and it is much, demanding the XD, XD enforcement here, the application here in this country of those principles of democratic justice and right which the British nation say they are going to apply in Burma, in India, in the far-flung parts of the earth, but they won't apply here. We ask for the application of those principles of justice and democratic right. We ask for justice, and that's not too much to ask. In return for that, they can have our friendship. If they don't want that, then they'll have our resolute determination to end this cruel war. I have no doubt that uh, it was inevitable that that declaration should have been made. I did explain in the second reading in the dial of the Republic of Ireland bill that the consideration of its effect upon the solution of the problem of partition was the one matter that held my, so far as my influence was concerned, behind that the Declaration of the Republic and the enactment of, of the Republic of Ireland Act, the one thing that held my hand in connection with that was the question how far it would affect the, the, the hope of a united Ireland. And I explained, and I'm still of the view, uh, that it had no effect whatever, that if we had still remained a member of the Commonwealth of Nations, that if we had become imperialists and waved the Union jack as in a way it never had been done before in order to achieve partition, that that would not have achieved partition, that there was such an intransigent attitude towards the unification of Ireland in the North at that time uh, that there would be no hope whatever, even if we had remained in the Commonwealth of Nations. In short, really, as a politician, he was a, very, he was a lightweight. He, he was a, 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 an extremely pleasant person, a very kindly person, a very humane man and a marvellously loyal uh, colleague where he felt that he could be loyal. I mean, the, his behaviour in relation to Jim Everett was quite remarkable, really, in that quite scandalous business of the Balting Glass postmistress thing, the way he soldiered with Everett through that business was, was quite an, a remarkable achievement for one man, for his colleague. I think, incidentally, in relation to my own business, the mother and child, I believe that he completely supported me and had this humane feeling that we should have this kind of a, a mother and child or health scheme. I think he had, he certainly had that uh, liberal attitude in that regard and only changed because as a simple peasant Catholic that he was, he, he was told in some way or other this was a sin and he simply couldn't uh, subordinate his, his, his primitive faith to the needs of, of the social needs of, of our society, but I think he, he, he very much regretted it, and I think he very much would very much I think he would have stood up to everybody, the medical association, the doctors, everybody, if he uh, could have felt that in conscience he could have done it. The opposition to that bill from the Catholic bishops and from the medical association, along with irreconcilable differences between Noel Brown and his party leader Sean McBride, were all factors in the mother and child crisis in nineteen fifty one. It was the occasion when Mr. Costello told the Doyle, quote, When we are given advice or warning by the authoritative people in the Catholic Church on matters strictly confined to faith and morals, so long as I am here, we will give to their directions, given within that scope, and I have no doubt that they do not desire in the slightest to go one fraction of an inch outside the sphere of faith and morals. We will give to their directions our complete obedience and allegiance. 
This view was not exceptional at that time. All members of that government who were on record agreed with it, including Dr Brown, who told the Doyle in his resignation speech, I as a Catholic accept unequivocally and unreservedly the views of the hierarchy in this matter. The mother and child crisis had as much to do with personality differences as with differences on policy. Looking back 20 years later, Mr Costello would not accept the argument that it showed the Republic to be a priest-ridden country. I think the power of the church at the present time is as powerful as ever it was because it exists not through any authority that's exercised either by priests or by bishops or by hierarchy or anybody else but because the church exists in the hearts of the Irish people and the priests as the representatives of the church have still the strong place in affection and regard that they always had and uh, it's absurd to be talking about priest-ridden people we're a priest-ridden people because we're a Catholic religious people and for no other reason. Mr Costello was to return to office as leader of the second inter-party government from 1954 to 1957. Tom O'Higgins was Minister for Health in that government. I had, of course, at that time, a rather difficult um, portfolio. It was associated with uh, very recent controversies and um, it was an area of state activity in which uh, there were strong views and there had been much bitterness and so on. I found him uh, a great source of uh, help and counsel in relation to problems or difficulties which I had to face and uh, he used to always inspire one to go ahead uh, even if the Guys look dark or anything of that kind. He um, he had a way of saying, "Ah, oh, it'll be all right. You'll get through it." And Liam Cosgrave was Minister for External Affairs. He listened carefully to the different viewpoints. Uh, was very clear in his summing up. Could take a note of what different people were saying and sum up the um, arguments and put the points of view clearly. He was patient. In fact, he had very considerable reserve of, of patience and understanding. Uh, he was always anxious, if possible, to get a, a agreement. And once agreement was reached, then he uh, expressed the decision as arrived at. Having lost the 1957 election to Fianna Foyle, he concentrated again on his legal career, but he continued in the Doyle until 1969. He left public life then, he said, not because he didn't feel up to the job, mentally or physically. But because, if I may quote... W.B. Yeats, the years like great black oxen thread the world, and I had to bow to the inevitability of the passage of time. But my primary reason for retiring was to enable younger people to take the place that is necessary now, in view of the fact that they were probably more competent than I was to deal with the very complex problems that will face any parliament in the future. His last political speech was unscheduled. It came at the close of the 1975 Fine Gael, or Desh, being held in the round room of the Mansion House in Dublin. The call for him to speak came from the floor. Mr Costello! Mr Costello! I have left politics now for some years, I've enjoyed myself, away from the hurly-burly of political affairs, 
but sometimes I do feel an urge to get back. <laughs> sometimes I get really annoyed at some of the things that are going on. I wish to sit to be back in the dial to say what I precisely think of certain people. Certain people. <laughs> but I have restrained myself and have in the as I know I'm on practically on the brink of eternity, have <laughs> satisfied myself in the leisure moments, say, thinking what I would say if I were there and not saying it. <laughs> and tonight, when I was listening to Mr. Cosgrave giving his address and recalling the ties when we had very little support in the country and rather less support in the dial, I recall the fact that throughout all that time a nucleus of loyal, patriotic, decent Irish men and women stood by this party in the worst of times. <laughs> and it is due to them and to the torch that they handed on to their children and their children's children that we have such a magnificent dish here tonight. I recall the time when I sat in the dial with fever in my heart and rage in my brain, listening to the late Sean Lamas saying, Finnegan is dead and they won't lie down and die. <laughs> we, proved, we proved that that was untrue as I told him across the dial again and again that it was untrue. An era closed with his death in January 1976. He died four months after the passing of his political rival, Eamon de Valera. Their deaths mean that the men who led the first 19 Irish governments, from the late W.T. Cosgrave's first Executive Council in 1922, through the years of de Valera and Costello to the late Sean Lamas's last administration, these first four heads of government are dead. The close of an era. A year or two ago, Johnny Costello was asked if he thought Ireland now was the Ireland that his generation had worked for. It certainly isn't, and it never could be. The, the, the plans of the of the Rockter, the poet Ashling, and all the rest of them, all the people who who talked about what would be done if we had a republic. Everybody was talking now about if we had a socialistic republic, if we had a workers' republic. All it's all nonsense. We'll be looking for the moon all the time and never getting it. We'll be looking for the stars and the sun and the moon, and we'll we'll be thankful to get a little bit of cake down here on Earth. I think, on the whole, I'm optimistic. We have, we have survived so many shocks and so many uh, almost political earthquakes that I think the country is safe and that we'll have a, a rather decent country that would never be very well off. But if we could keep uh, what's in one of the rather useless parts of the Constitution and put it into actual practice, we must get somewhere. Article 45, which is a piece of uh, just pious platitudes in a way, uh, lays down the principle that the justice and charity shall inform all the institutions of the national government. When that, that part of the Constitution, the, the directive principles of social policy, were being debated in Doyle in the draft Constitution, I perhaps flip, flippantly asked Mr. De Valera, who was then r r running the Constitution through the Doyle, why he didn't put in the Sermon on the Mouth. I think perhaps it, it, it wouldn't be too bad a thing if the Sermon of the Mount, as well as the justice of the principles of justice and the charity, should inform the political institutions. 
and if we had the Sermon on the Mount and justice and charity being acted by politicians in their political life, then we'd have very great hope for the future. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.